Welcome to Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Pav alongside Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, one of NASA's most recent endeavors yields more than expected. A once-in-200-year insect experience is nearly upon us. And on this day in history, there's an opportunity on Mars. We'll explain. Coming up, Cool Stuff Ride Home. NASA has finally opened the Bennu asteroid sample that was collected with the OSIRIS-REx mission. After a little bit of work, the team successfully opened the TAGSUM, or touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism head. The curation team developed new tools to overcome the obstacles in opening the round sampler head. They had issues with stuck fasteners, and the team employed those new tools that they had to develop to reveal the extensive contents of the asteroid Bennu sample that returned to Earth. The development is exciting for scientists that are eagerly awaiting a piece that could offer insights into our solar system's origin. The OSIRIS-REx mission, launched in September 2016, reached asteroid Bennu in December of 2018 and successfully snagged pieces of the near-Earth asteroid in October of 2020. The spacecraft commenced its return journey to Earth in May of 2021, dropping off the sample in the Utah desert in September of 23. Before the bulk of the asteroid sample can be extracted, a few essential steps still remain. The curation team is set to remove the round metal collar and the transfer sample from the TAGSAM head into smaller pie wedge-shaped trays. These trays will undergo documentation through photography before the sample is meticulously weighed, packaged, and stored at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. The precise weight of the sample is yet to be determined, providing valuable information about the amount of asteroid material delivered to Earth by the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. Upon the removal of the aluminum lid, the space team discovered black dust and debris on the avionics deck of the canister, carefully employing tweezers or a scoop while holding the TAGSAM head's Myler flap. The team estimated the sample's weight to be 8.8 ounces of rock and dust, and it could still hold more than that. That sample exceeded NASA's goal of only bringing 2.12 ounces to Earth. The returned asteroid pieces will be distributed among a sample analysis team comprising 230 global scientists for an in-depth exploration of Bennu's composition. NASA's plans to retain at least 70% of that sample at the Johnson Space Center for future research, anticipating advancements in technology over the coming decades. Additionally, selected asteroid fragments will be made accessible for a public display at the Smithsonian Institution, Space Center Houston, and the University of Arizona. Bennu, a small near-Earth asteroid, orbits close to our planet approximately every six years. Scientists hypothesize that Bennu may have originated from a larger carbon-rich asteroid 700 million to 2 billion years ago and subsequently drifted closer to Earth. Analyzing the asteroid fragments in a laboratory setting will contribute to unraveling the mysteries of the solar system's origins. In the weeks ahead, NASA will determine the final mass of the sample, promising future revelations about this continually generous asteroid sample. That's crazy to see that they got about four times what they were originally anticipating by grabbing that asteroid sample. I'm always fascinated by anything that has to do with space, Reggie. So to essentially just sit around and wait to find out what all of these scientists ultimately conclude by studying this asteroid is really what has me on edge now. Uh, because as you noted, likely learn facts about the origin of the solar system and and who knows what else also mentioned in the story they're they're retaining a lot of this for future studies uh, down the road decades down the road when they expect advancements in technology so pretty darn cool and the fact that it's going to be on display at the university of arizona uh selfishly i'm excited about that my parents have a place not too far from tucson so i think i'll make the trek down to see what a space rock looks like
And I'll probably end up going, eh, it looks like a rock that I know from Earth. But nonetheless, knowing that it was orbiting the Earth at some point, there's just something neat, for lack of a better term, about that. And seeing how a lot of this is dust, I don't think anyone's ever been more excited to receive dust <laughs> in their life than some of these scientists. Yeah, that's usually something that's causing me a lot of uh, distress, quite frankly, <laughs> trying to keep that off the floor. But in this case, I'll take it. And you know what? I'd leave it out, too, if it was in my home and my friends come over. Why is your place so dusty? You know what? That's, that's from a, a, an asteroid. So take it in and, and enjoy it. If you're not a fan of insects, this story may not be so cool to you. Over a trillion cicadas are set to invade the U.S. in an occurrence not witnessed since the presidency of Thomas Jefferson back in 1803. Two neighboring swarms of red-eyed cicadas will surface from the ground in April, and individuals in the Midwest and Southeast regions should prepare for a season filled with the constant hum of these flying insects. According to the University of Connecticut, cicada broods often emerge simultaneously, but this year's event will be especially unique. The first time in over two centuries where both Brood 19, which appears every 13 years, and Brood 13, appearing every 17 years, will emerge concurrently. The next simultaneous emergence of these broods is not anticipated for another 221 years. Now, I imagine some people are asking themselves, what the heck is a cicada? I didn't have any real knowledge of their existence until moving to Nevada several years ago, and when they emerge they're noisy as we said in the opening and they're seemingly everywhere the noise comes from the males who have loud noise makers called timbles used to attract females of course and per yukon again the university of connecticut unique broods are neither species nor are they populations they're best described as regional multi-species groupings of periodical cicadas that emerge on a common schedule. Did you get all that? Across the U.S., there are 12 broods of 17-year cicadas and three broods of 13-year cicadas. Per a time report, cicadas, which are in the same family as stink bugs and bed bugs, live in the underground burrows that they create for more than a decade until they're mature enough to rise to the surface. Now, weeks before they emerge, these insects create tunnels to the surface, but do not actually come out of their quote-unquote homes until soil temperatures at a depth of 7 to 8 inches reach about 64 degrees Fahrenheit. Cicadas are unique insects in terms of their extended lifespan, at least when you think about what's going on underground for all those years. However, their above-ground existence is quite short, only four to six weeks for the purposes of mating. They measure approximately one to one and a half inches in length with a wingspan nearly double that size. They're fairly easy to identify, too, with orange veins and prominent red eyes. Most of the time, cicadas are timely, but some may emerge a year late or they may quote-unquote, count the years incorrectly. For example, thousands of cicadas emerged in the year 2000, four years ahead of schedule. Maybe they just wanted to be there to uh, celebrate, Reggie. I'm not <laughs> sure what ultimately uh, the reason for that was. Four years feels a little bit early. Uh, it feels a lot early. Now, again, citing time, cicadas will become a site across several states later this year, but likely only Illinois and Indiana will be able to see both broods. Brood 13 will be seen in states like Iowa, Wisconsin, and possibly 
even Michigan. Brood 19 will emerge in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Now, while the mating call of these insects may be annoying, trust me it is, cicadas are harmless to humans. They don't sting or bite, and they're not poisonous. The Environmental Protection Agency says they can be a great food source for birds, and they're nutritious for the soil once they die and start decomposing. They may be damaging to young trees if female cicadas choose to lay their eggs in one. At a better protected tree, the EPA suggests covering them in mesh netting with a quarter-inch holes or smaller. Uh, cicadas won't be harmful to any flowers or fruit because they only consume sap from trees and shrubs to stay alive and pesticides oddly enough do not work on cicadas so don't try because clearly not good for anyone in in that instance yeah at the end of the day as someone who's experienced this and i'm sure a lot of folks listening right now have done the same it's really just sort of an annoyance especially at night when you go out and you feel like your tree is alive making these i mean obviously your tree is alive but not typically <laughs> making noises the way that uh, that it does when cicadas are uh i i don't want to say infest but that really is what you know, it feels like they're all over the place. So deal with the annoyance. They'll be gone soon. Uh, I think of it much like growing up in Wisconsin, where, where you are obviously too, Reg, mayflies. And I don't know if you ever experienced that, but living along the Mississippi River in western Wisconsin, those things would come out and it was, it's not every year, but when they do emerge, they are freaking everywhere. And then when they die, they're still everywhere. And you can't like take a step without crunching five dead mayfly bodies so like i said end of the day harmless but still a sight to behold yeah i've dealt with the mayflies before i live uh, near lake winnebago a big body of water uh, in wisconsin but i do have to say whenever i see these animals where their whole life is to emerge to mate i mean and then they die <laughs> you mate and then you die i mean granted i would have lived a long time as a human <laughs> but well you know there's a lot of, i guess there's a lot of humans that live that way too you live to mate but go out with a bang i <laughs> yeah, guess as yeah. They say. <laughs> yeah it, i guess at least the cicadas have 13 to 17 years depending on the brood before they get to that point but you know you get some of these animals like we talked about uh not too long ago these snowflies you know they just have a short lifespan they you know emerge in winter, mate, and die. It, I don't know. I don't think a bug's life is a life for me. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I guess you could liken it to, you know, life as a child and then a college student. I, I just kind of sat around in a hole, it felt like, for a lot of years, too. So, And then you finally emerge, and, you know, you get out there and see what you can do. I guess the difference is that we don't die right <laughs> right after achieving that, that above-ground goal. So, yeah, I, I, I hear you, though. It is a little odd that it, it's almost like, hey, we exist to, to survive for a few days, and then we're out. But... Um, nonetheless, if you are a, a fan of natural phenomenon, this is one to keep an eye on. Taking a look at this day in history, we head back to space. On January 25th, 2004, NASA's Opportunity lands on the surface of Mars. Opportunity, also known as MER-B or Mars Exploration Rover B or MER-1, was active from 2004 to 2018 when they lost contact with it. If you want to look at how long it lived on Mars, it's 5,111 souls that it was active. If you uh, look at uh, Earth, it's 14 years, 138 days. Now, its twin, the Spirit Rover, actually landed three weeks prior to Opportunity, but Opportunity was the first vehicle or craft or whatever you want to call it to complete a marathon on Mars. On March 28, 2015, Opportunity completed 26.19 miles of traveling. Ooh. 
The fastest runners on Earth, of course, can complete a marathon in hours, but it took the rover 11 years and two months to go that distance. Slow but steady. I'd say, to be fair, it was working. I mean, it had a job to do at the same time. And that job? Collecting samples. Its real mission was to search for signs of water, which it did when it uncovered signs of water in deposits near its landing site, Eagle Crater. It appears that the rocks formed in a shallow lake, but it would have been too acidic for life. Then they had it go to Endeavor Crater to look for signs of water in that area, that would possibly be less acidic. Ray Arvidson, a member of the Opportunity Science team from Washington University, said, quote, Endeavor is surrounded by fractured sedimentary rock, and the cracks are filled with gypsum. He added that gypsum forms when groundwater comes up and fills the crack in the ground, so this was good evidence of liquid water, end quote. However, it was a sandstorm that damaged communication with the rover and put an end to Opportunity's mission as it lost communication with Earth. I believe it was the movie The Martian where not only did he use the rovers to communicate with Earth, but it was a sandstorm that left him stranded there. Although every scientist out there always likes to point out sandstorms aren't that strong to, <laughs> to knock over a ship and leave someone stranded. But in this case, the sandstorm is at least strong enough to knock out communication with the rover. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I can understand why scientists would do that. I'm, I'm the same way when watching movies and they investigate or talk about a subject matter that I am more familiar with and it's not done in, in a uh, very lifelike way, shall we say. But yeah, pretty cool. Uh, again, as we said at the outset of this episode, anytime there's anything space related, I, uh, I sit up and take notice because not to just throw out a bunch of cliches here because I know everyone loves to refer to it as sort of that last frontier uh, yet to be explored. But there are so many unknowns that anytime something comes back or something like this takes place where we are able to better educate ourselves, I find it cool. And that's why we're cool stuff ride home. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You can reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll be back with another episode of Cool Stuff Ride Home tomorrow. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.